I'm sure all of you have been asked the question, who are you? And you've probably answered, well, my name is so-and-so, and this is, you know, and, and I'm married maybe, and I've got 2.4 kids, or, um, or I work here. You know, you've answered all these different ways. Um, and yet that question of who are you is a question that, if we dive deeper, goes much deeper. I would say this, that all of us have kind of a, uh, a due north. You know, each one of our lives, if, if we were a compass, whatever, there's something where no matter where we go, it always points in that direction. There's, there's no one here who doesn't have something upon which they are, I would say, centering their lives. And I would say this, if you were to kind of queue up um, perhaps our Netflix queue or uh, we'd get on a hold of our top 25 most played in terms of our playlist, uh, there'd be a variety of different lyrics and narratives that would kind of tell you where to find your ultimate identity. And I would say for our culture today, most often it's pretty much this. Look with, within yourself. In fact, it's kind of up to you to create your identity. It's kind of up to you to create a meaning. And as we began this series looking through this, uh, this letter to, this, to um, a variety of churches in modern-day Turkey back in the first century, um, what we've been kind of suggesting is that actually um, there is an identity that is completely different. <clears throat> that there is, this kind of comes crashing in. It's not about looking within. It's actually about looking outside of yourself actually to one person, and that being Jesus. Um, that if you were actually to kind of sum up the, the entire Bible, it's about Jesus. It's about him. And in fact, if I were to put it this way, that perhaps all of our personal narratives in this room that biblically speaking, that there is one meta-narrative from which all of those are defined, that it's all wrapped up in Jesus. And Paul writes these Christians in the first century in modern-day Turkey, and he's trying to help them understand who they are in Jesus. And if you were here last week, uh, Casey unpacked like 11 verses and, okay, so this is going to date me, but there's this one movie back in like 1989 called UHF. It actually had Weird Al Yankovic. And there's one scene in that movie where um, it's, it's like this, you know, TV broadcast, public television thing. It's a variety show, and the janitor's running it because it's just a horrible, you know, like, um, channel. So he gets a, a, a shot. And one of his tricks is he puts a, like a five-year-old on this, like, chair, and he goes, and now let's watch Johnny drink from a fire hose, you know? And the guy literally unleashes like a fire hose on the kid and just blows him off. And it's, it's awesome. <clears throat> and all I could think about is that it's a little bit like what I felt like last week. Um, because the text was just packed with this identity that's found in Jesus. And Casey did a great job. It was, <laughs> we learned last week that in Jesus that you are chosen, that you are adopted, that you are forgiven, that you are redeemed, and that you are heirs, 
that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, that all of that is available in, through faith in Jesus. It's like drinking from a, a fire hose. And as if Paul knew that there's no way that these readers were going to get everything, right? He kind of turns the corner, and it turns the corner for us today with just really one simple question. It's this, how do we grow in that? Like, how do we grasp that? How do we take these truths about an identity in Jesus, and how do we actually own those? Or maybe a better way of saying it is, how do those actually become in such a way that they would actually own us? And that's what Paul is dealing with in this section that was just read, and it's, it's really just a prayer. <laughs> it's Paul just saying, hey guys, here's what I'm praying for you. And that actually gives us a really good clue about how we can actually grow in that. So let's, uh, let's look in um, as this prayer begins. In verse 15 he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting that Paul, Paul begins just giving thanks for them. He actually is just saying, hey, I'm actually seeing some of this identity actually being worked out in your midst. Uh, put it this way, in that church, we'll see this later on in the letter, was actually made up of two groups, Jews and Gentiles. In those days, that went together like mayonnaise and ice cream. You know what I mean? Like, that's never good today even, but I'm just trying to make the point that those did not work. They were different racially, ethnically, socially, and up until Jesus, spiritually. And yet, they'd become to learn that they had been adopted into this family. And that people who were very different from them, that they were adopted by this Father through faith in Jesus. And all of a sudden, they were beginning to love one another. And that was extraordinary. And yet, might I remind us that the extraordinary of what Paul is talking about there is actually worked out in very ordinary settings. And I want to take a moment because I think it's appropriate to just for a moment just to give thanks for, I think, what God is doing in the past year with Redeemer City. Um, just for how I've seen people love one another and how people have grown in that. And I'll just point out this, like, last week, it's Monday, and... Um, we're gathered over at the Rollins house, and we gathered around Jimmy Fallon's chili. Um, good friend of ours, looked up the recipe, made it for everybody. It was pretty good. I mean, I don't know if it'd win the chili cook-off at my house in a couple weeks, but Jimmy can come if he wants to. <coughs> but what's really cool about that night is, number one, it was just really ordinary. I mean, quite honestly, we ate some chili. We, we prayed for one another. We did some icebreakers. Um, in that group, there's a couple people from Texas. There's one from Iowa. There's a new individual that came that week. There's another one that came like the last few weeks. Um, no one walked away from that night, at least to, to my knowledge, saying, that night changed my life forever, you know? It was very ordinary. But can I tell you just how extraordinary that night was? It was a bunch of people who had never gotten together if it weren't for Jesus. 
Do you, do you know how unique that is? It, I mean, Jimmy Fallon's chili is good, but it wouldn't have drawn that crowd that night, you know? And in fact, what were we doing there? We were trying to grow in knowing one another, getting to know the ins and outs of each other, and actually growing to love one another. And I just, I want us to pause for a moment. Like, that's, that's very ordinary, but that's exactly what Paul is commending here. You know, I get asked this a lot, um, and I'm sure you do too, Casey, is, hey, how are things at Redeemer City going? And when you're a leader of anything, of a startup, you know, what do you usually go to, right? You go to kind of like the bottom line, and in kind of church world, it's not a whole lot different than other worlds. It's kind of like, in my mind, you kind of go like, what are your numbers? Give me like the, you know, and, and, and that's sometimes where my mind like goes in terms of the MO. I'm, I, I can be like, well, hey, you know, Sunday morning, um, yeah, it's up from last year, and city groups, we have a, yeah, we just launched another one, and this is really good, and, and, and again, I'm not saying any of all that is bad. But I think next time somebody asks me this, I'm just going to tell them about Monday night at the Rollins. <laughs> it's a really ordinary night. Let me tell you what, these people are learning to love one another. Isn't that amazing? And um, because that's what Paul does here. So let me just encourage you, if, if you're in a city group, and if you're not, get in one, but if you're in a city group this week, like, don't miss the extraordinary in the midst of the ordinary. Give thanks for the people around you. Give thanks for what's happening. That's, what, that's how Paul begins here. In fact, that's how Paul begins every one of his letters but one. So Paul starts there. Then, then it continues in 17 through 18. This is what it says. He begins to tell them what he's praying for them. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. This is what he's asking God to do for them. And, and I want to focus for a moment on that word, enlightened. Um, it just really means to shine. I don't know if you've ever, I'm sure you've all experienced this, where you've been in a room that's either pitch dark or dimly lit. And either somebody opens the door to a room that's lighted, or somebody has a flashlight, or they pull out their phone, smartphone, or whatever else, hit the, you know, like the, the flashlight button, and all of a sudden, what happens? You can all of a sudden see what's around you. It, it's always been there, right? But now you can see it. And, and Paul is doing this. He's saying, here's the deal. All of that list, 3 to 14, of adopted and chosen and forgiven and redeemed, all those things, what I want God to do in your midst is I want you to see what you already have. Francis Schaeffer said this way, I want you to possess what you already possess. I want you to see that all that you have in Christ. You see, um, put it this way, it, it's really kind of astounding here. The answer to the question, the million dollar question of how do we grow in the knowledge of our identity in Christ is by asking God to do it. That's what Paul does here. He says, God, would you do it? 
You know how, um, okay, so you know how you are at the pot machine and you put in the money and you know inevitably what happens, right? You push the Coke or the Pepsi or whatever you want and nothing happens, you know? And you're so, you know, there's like a sequence that's universal what you do at that point, you know? You, um, you begin to double check, you put in the right change, then you push the button like 40 times, and you're like, maybe I'll settle for diet. Okay, I'll try this button, maybe that's the problem. And then if nothing happens, universally, what do you do? You hit the machine, or you shake it, right? Because, because you know, hey, the money's in there, but it's not being applied. And this is, this is what can happen as a follower of Christ, you, you can do this. You can have all the right doctrine. You can have what Casey just talked about, 3 to 14. You can have it in your head. You can recite it. But it still isn't in your heart. It hasn't landed yet. And, and Paul is saying this. The shaking of the pot machine to get that money to drop for the penny to drop... Actually, you know what that is? It's prayer. It's prayer. That's the actual appropriating of the work of what Jesus has done in our lives. It comes through prayer. And I don't know about you, but like, I almost don't like that answer. Like, could you give me like five steps? Could you give me something I'm in control of? But what it says to me, it says this. It says, actually, not only am I dependent on Jesus for my salvation, I'm actually dependent on God the Father and God the Son and the work of His Spirit to actually help me understand what he's done for me. Like we never get away from actually needing him, even in understanding the work he's done for us. So, one of the things that's pretty awesome about this text is it is Paul prays that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and he just talks about the role of the Holy Spirit, the importance of the third person of the Trinity and the work of our lives in terms of, of, of this. I love what 1 Corinthians 2.12 talks about. It says this, Now we have not, we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. That, in other words, that the Spirit's like a tutor. that <laughs> actually applies the, the work of Christ to our hearts. He helps us understand adoption and inheritance and our redemption and, and takes them from topics like up here in our head, which we need to know, but actually works them into the very center of our being. And so... I mean, if that's true, if that's how Paul models for us how you actually grow in your identity is actually through prayer, asking God to do it, like if we're that dependent, then, then, then the question is, is this for us? If you're a follower of Christ, is, if that's true, how do we live in light of that? How, how would that shape us? How would that inform us? And I think about many of you, you've transitioned to Madison over the past one to two years. And, you know, some of you have gone from, like, college to, like, your first job. 
Some of you have gone from a job to like college, you know. Some of you have gone from single uh, to married. Some of you have gone from no kids to now having a kid. And as I've had conversations with all of those, you know, all of those demographics, you know, all of those have stress and they have anxiety and they have all these different problems that come up. And if you're a follower of Christ, I would say this, most, more often than not, when you pray, oftentimes, I know I do, I just pray for the circumstances. I'm not saying it's bad to pray for circumstances or changes in those circumstances, but might I humbly submit to you that perhaps what is equally as important, and maybe even more so, is that in the midst of all that you're walking through, in the midst of transition, that maybe what's more important, maybe what's most important, is that you actually might know your identity in Christ more in the midst of your circumstances. I know some of you this morning, um, you are walking in a season of deep valley, deep valleys. And you don't, it's one of those things, you've been in a valley, sometimes you're able to see like where you're going and you know when you're going to ascend up. I know for some of you, it's, you're not even, you can't even see the range. You're not sure if you'll ever arrive up any higher than you are now. And I'm sure in one sense, your life and what you ask is oftentimes probably asking for change in circumstances and help in all these situations. And that may, God may provide that in whatever fashion he decides. But let me say this, perhaps what is equally important or maybe what is even more important, maybe what you need during the season to sustain you is just to know simply that you're adopted, that you're his, that you're in the family. I think of others of you who have taken just incredible leadership roles as it relates to Redeemer City. And some of that is maybe perhaps formal, maybe a city group leader, maybe apprenticing in that fashion. Um, perhaps it's being worked out in the midst of a gospel fluency group. Some of you are just initiating with people who are just a little bit younger. You're just, just out of, hey, just come into my home. Let's, let's meet. Let's hang out. And let me suggest this, that if Proverbs is correct, that it is from the heart the, that the wellspring of life goes, that, that from our heart is where everything flows, then perhaps one of the most important things that you can do in your leading others is, is to ask God to do this in their life. And guys, I'm not talking about mere incantation, like, hey, if I just say the right words, well, then it's going to happen. No, it's just a heart that says, guess what? If this is going to happen, God, you've got to do it. Would you please give so-and-so a greater awareness of who they are in light of what your son has done? This is what Paul does. This is, this is in one sense, this is the path that Paul blazes for us. He prays. Um, so he prays that they might understand more of what 
they have. And then he lays out kind of three specific ways. Um, if you're tracking with me, you can look at verse uh, 18, the second part. It says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And when Paul says the hope to which he's called you, he's just looking back to what he just said in 3 to 14. Um, and we've kind of talked a little bit about that, but let me just at this point, maybe just share a little bit about how this is being worked out in my own life. Um, maybe that'll give you some, at least understanding of perhaps what this, how this might relate to you and where you are. I was reading this last week, this book in, um, called The Imperfect Pastor, and which, might I say, I think vocationally that should be for like every vocation, like the imperfect implementer, right? Like that'd be a nice one to have. You can feel a little better about yourself, right? Don't have it all together or your imperfect doctor, although you probably wouldn't want to see your doctor having that book, you know? <laughs> You'd be like, uh. Um, but what I loved about this is in this book, it's written by a pastor and he's admitting, um, I think what perhaps all of us feel in, in whatever vocation or calling we have, um, he just talks about this desire and ambition uh, to be kind of known and to be successful, and, and in his sense, in, in ministry. And he was, he was simply admitting that, gosh, I really desire approval, and perhaps even in my own tribe, some little bit of fame. He writes about a scenario where he was um, with one of his mentors in college, and this mentor was just looking at him, knowing that, that he had this deep ambition, and a lot of things were good things, but perhaps rooted in some bad things, and he just said this to him. He said, Zachary, that was that's the name of the pastor, you are already discovered. And then Zach said, what? His mentor replied, whatever happens in your future with all your dreams and what you hope for, I want you to know that getting discovered has already happened to you. And can I tell you what underlies what that mentor was saying? It was saying this, your identity, you've, you've been adopted. You've already been discovered. And can I tell you, like, on the inside out, like, that changes things. Like, when you begin to grow in that hope to which he has called you, then the very platform, the springboard from which you kind of get up on Monday morning, like, that changes things. It really does. There is more freedom there. There is more peace there. There's more place to risk there. The second thing Paul prays is this. This is the last part of 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Uh, if you've ever done any sort of icebreakers, you know probably one of the most popular ones is uh, like if you're stranded on a deserted island, you know, what three islands you take with you? Or, you know, if your house is on fire, other than your kids and your spouse, assuming you would take those, right? You would, you know, what would you take? And you're always, of course, the whole point of those questions is always, what do you most treasure? What do you most value? Well, the incredible part about this text is that God is the subject of this line right here. It's talking about what he most treasures. And it says his glorious inheritance in the saints. That, that's incredible. 
In one sense, Paul is saying, if you were to ask God what he would take on a deserted island with him, <laughs> he would say, my people, this is what I treasure. Um, about a year ago, Sean McAvoy stepped into a, um, let me look at this here, um, a Goodwill store. Yes, that's where I was going. And um, he found a sweater. And the sweater said, it's just a, like a West Point kind of sweater, jacket, whatever zip-up thing. It was for 58 cents. So he bought it and took it home. When he got it home, he found that on the inside label, there was, in black ink, a name. And the name was Lombardi. And, you know, you scratch your head at that point. There's not a lot of Lombardis in the world, right? And they figured out that it was actually owned by Vince Lombardi. Well, he auctioned that off seven months later for $43,000. You know? It's incredible, right? What, what changed the value? It was who owned it, right? I know, <laughs> and if you're here and you're not a Christian and you've been a part of a church, or maybe you've been disenfranchised, the church is, sometimes looks about 58 cents worth. Does that make sense, what I'm saying there? But in God's eyes, you are his treasured possession. And it's because you're in his son. Not, not because of your performance. It's all because you're united to Jesus. You, you want to you talk about finding your worth? Why would you run anywhere else than the God who looks at you and says, you're my treasured possession? That's just incredible. That, that's what Paul's praying for them. Paul's praying, would, would, would you get this? Would you know how important you are? Would you know how you, who, who you are? You're his treasured possession. And then the last thing Paul prays is that they might experience um, this power. And in verse 19, it says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? I love how Paul just kind of like immeasurably greatness of his power, like great might, like he just continues to, like, to throw on like adjective after, after adjective on just how great God's power is. And then he begins to say, this is, this is how you know he's powerful, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Um, Paul said, if you want to know the kind of power that's at work in the midst of a, a community gathered around my son, it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that means that Jesus, he lives, and that forever. And then it doesn't stop there. It says this, that, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, that power actually raised Jesus and then also exalted him to a place in which no one is higher that's the kind of power at work in the midst of a community gathered around my son. And then it doesn't stop there. It says this, but, and he, speaking about um, God, put all things under his feet, referring to Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church. In other words, 
not only is in this position, but he's able to put all things under him. Listen, when that was read in that culture of that day, uh, that provided a huge amount of comfort. And here's why. Because the narrative of that culture of that day was basically this. There's a whole bunch of spiritual forces and various gods out there. And they're involved in your life. And you have, your, your whole deal is you better just like do whatever you can to make sure they're on your good side. Otherwise, they're going to ruin your life. And what happened is these Christians put their faith in Jesus and they're wondering, well, where does Jesus stand in this whole reality of who's, you know, kind of like, modern day, my dad can beat up your dad sort of stuff. You know, a seven-year-old says, like, is my dad bigger than your dad? Is my God bigger than your God? And Paul is just saying straight up, guess what? He lives. He's never going to die again. He reigns. and That's never going to stop. And it's not just a position like, oh, he's in this position, but he can actually hold his own. That provided a huge amount of comfort in that culture. And let me just say this morning, some of you I know um, perhaps are curious, perhaps skeptical about Christianity, and you know, you kind of hear things like, so you're saying to me that Jesus rose from the dead? Okay, maybe. Uh, You're going to tell me today that Jesus is exalted, like he's over all? I mean, I'm sorry, but empirically looking out at things, how things are going, it seems to be not going very well, you know? There can be a little bit perhaps of cynicism, perhaps of skepticism that goes into that. But I could say a couple things, um, but I think what might be the most helpful is where the text points. And it actually points to this, that if you want to look at Jesus' reign and his rule and his power, do you know where it directs? The whole point of this text is it directs it towards the church. Um, it, in verse 19, it says, his power toward us who believe. It's talking about Jesus' power actually being at work in the midst of the church. And then what's even phenomenal is that in 22, it says that Jesus has the head over all things to the church, and that's saying for the purpose of the church. And so let me just say this. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you want to see the invisible reign of Jesus made visible, this isn't the only place you can look, but what this text would say is look within the lives of the people who follow him. That's what this text is saying. Um, the last part, 23, says this, which is his body, that the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And um, I have a friend who says this, and he's, he's, I think he's for the most part right, but he says this, you know, when you read through the Gospels and the life of Jesus, like wherever he goes, things get better. You know, when you think about it, Jesus heals, uh, he teaches, he looks out for the marginalized, um, all these things, he says, you know, things just get better. And when it says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, the sense is this. 
is that where the church is, things should just get better. If Jesus is at work in the midst of his people, and he is filling them to do the very same things he did, then it would seem to be that you could go to a city, you could find a community of people like this, and that their lives would be overflowing into the gaps and places where that is most needed in the city in which they live. Um, this week, I texted Casey a, a picture out of a page out of a book, and it was from a book we're reading, and it was just um, it was uh, sharing a story about a church in another city who a number of their kind of small group, C groups had gotten together, and they'd gone to a school where there's a lot of just needs, and they had just done a ton of renovation, getting school supplies, all these different things, just like just heaped on blessings. And what was really cool about that is that at the end of doing all of that, um, the, a number of the faculty just said, I just, I don't get it. <laughs> like, why are you doing this? And they began to step into this community more and more. A number of them became followers of Jesus. And my, my point being this, is that the Spirit of God was at work in the midst of these people, and they were simply looking out at their city, and they're saying, where are the needs? And I, and I text the case of this because on two, on two fronts. One is, like, I'm just tremendously encouraged by what God has done in this past year in the midst of our community. Like, there's, there's a number of things we could just say, hey, God is at work, not perfectly, not in our lives perfectly right, but he's at work. And then I'm also excited because there are some things stirring. Um, even this week, some means happening um, to continue to work out the implications of what it means to be his body. Let's pray, and um, we'll wrap things up here. Um, God, perhaps the most um, pressing thing in this text is simply this, that you would help us know more and more uh, who we are. And I pray, um, God, that you would help us to know um, and walk in light of our adoption, walk in light of our inheritance, walk in light of our redemption, walk in light of our forgiveness, and that spirit, the, that your spirit might continue to reveal more and more of who you are to us and who we are in light of that. And we ask this in your name. Amen.